had gotten a bucket from the kitchen and, and he had made, made his own brushes and he put a stool on the table and he painted for his life. With the Nazis, you never know what was going to happen in the next minute. And so the SS command proved to save him. He spent the next few months painting their portraits, painting landscapes for them, even their, painting their dog. That's what he wrote. But he also wrote that the painting itself gave him solace and the will to live. So it was a form of resistance. And then he survived the death march with the help of the, the Jewish doctor from, and another younger prisoner. There was a reason for his survival at the age of 51, and it was to show his art to the world, to show the inhumanity of man to man. It was very important to him until he died. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Miriam Friedman Morris, discussing her father, David Friedman, and how he used his talent as an artist to survive under the Third Reich. Miss Friedman goes on to share more about the tenacity of her father and about her journey to locate and exhibit the work of this prolific artist. Miriam Friedman Morris, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thanks for your interest and the opportunity to speak about my father, David Friedman. Your father, his story is so unique. He survived as a Nazi prisoner because of his his truly keen ability as an artist and at an age when most Nazi prisoners did not survive. So would you share a little bit from his life, the progression as a thriving artist into that survival mode under the Nazi regime? So I'd like to just step back and mention that my father was born in 1893 in Austria-Hungary at that time, which is today Ostrava, Czech Republic, or Czechia. At the age of 17, he um, ventured to Berlin and also started out um, as a sign painter but soon he was um, studying with Lovis Korint and the, and the great etcher Hermann Struck. Uh, when World War I was uh, an absolute terrible interruption in his promising career, but he did serve as an, as an army artist on the, on the Russian front, and he was decorated for his bravery. And after World War I, he went straight to um, back to to Berlin in his studio, which was opened in 19 at the end of 1914 at the advice of Lovis Korinth. And the following year, he exhibited at the Akademie der Kunst, among other famous artists. He also exhibited at the Berliner Secession in 1922 and 1925 in other cities in Germany and uh, Czechoslovakia. He owned his own printing press. And from 1919 to 1927, he etched about 80 plates, capable of printing 1,000 etchings each. In the early 1920s, his widespread recognition for his portrait of famous world chess master propelled his career into a new direction. He became a leading press artist 
and produced hundreds of portraits of celebrated personalities from the arts, music, theater, sports, politics, and industry. This talent for portraiture played a central role throughout his career and saved his life during the Holocaust. And he, he apprenticed as a sign painter, which helped him also during those times when he could no longer paint as an artist, like under the Nazi occupation, and also when he went to Israel, they were not looking for artists. They were, you had to make a living, and he was always able to go back to this um, work, this, this hand, handicraft, posters, always able to, to go back to commercial art. And despite his, the numerous interruptions in his career, he continued to paint. His art would not be silent. And it's hard to believe this, but he depicted human fate already on the battlefields of World War I during the interwar years as a refugee in Prague and as a prisoner in the Lodge ghetto in Auschwitz and continued as a survivor. Anti-Semitism was on the rise long before Hitler's ascent to power. The Nazi Party's extreme nationalist, racist, and anti-Semitic views were known to the population and supported by the German people. In April 1933, um, Jewish work prohibition was ordered across Germany. It was immediately forbidden for Jewish artists to, to exhibit part publicly. My father removed his art from the galleries and closed the studio. He could no longer freelance for the press. He could only sell to a limited circle of Jewish clients who had more urgent worries than to buy paintings. The loss of his profession was a huge blow to a man who lived for his art. My discoveries would show he did not completely forsake his art and that he produced portraits at the, at the Yiddische Kulturbund, the Jewish Culture Association, which was um, set up by uh, Goebbels for the Jews so they could go and listen to a good concert or uh, or uh, opera or and kept these musicians employed but it was just a farce because it was a temporary thing before it was shut down and those people were largely depart deported and went to their deaths in gas chambers. My father um, was was sent from the Lodge Ghetto at the end of August 1944. He was on the last train to Auschwitz. And soon after he arrived, he realized that he was not going to survive there. Um, it was, he, he said he barely could survive one week there. And um, they were, artists were not needed. So there was a call for musicians. And my father was a serious violinist. He had studied under Karl Flesch in Berlin, but it was, you know, a secondary to his artwork. He knew he wasn't going to be a concert violinist. He just enjoyed it. And so he, he volunteered, and he was accepted, uh, and 16 musicians... Uh, were sent in an open-air truck to the sub-camp Glywitz 1. And there, uh, each musician had to get an instrument, and they had to audition. And my father's uh, fingers were cold from the trip in the snow 
in the ice cold truck and he failed. So he had to prove that he that he was worth something. And so he became he painted and he painted a mural across the barracks wall to show that um that he was uh, an artist. And what was interesting about that, he was thinking about what he could paint to impress them. And he thought about the Havel River um, that he had painted in 1922 in Berlin. And several years ago, I was contacted by a woman who lived in Germany. And she was dusting off a painting, and she was curious about who was David Friedman. So she went to the internet and found me, and so she contacted me, Facebook, phone, every which way, to tell me she had a painting, and it was of the Havel River. So I took my father's um, description of the painting and sent it to her, and she said, that's my painting. So this is the painting he was thinking about, and this is another, it was a huge excitement. It just brings history and, and the story to such life when you actually have a piece to show of what seems like a fantastic story. Like, how, did, how could he have done that? I had read there was, and I'm not sure if it was in the ghetto or in the concentration camps, that he had, um, I think it was in the ghetto, that he'd been asked by the foreman to create a commission so that they could get more food. And it was um, a swastika eagle over broken flags of the nations that they thought they were conquering. I was told this story by Abraham Sikiart, who was a, um, a brilliant poet. And uh, he was about maybe 13 or 14. He was very young at the time. He was from Lodge, actually, his family. And he was in the in the same um, resort as they call it, metal metal one, I think, or metal two. And he watched my father um, make make these designs. And um, he he's the one who told me this story about he was asked to do this um, Nazi um, swastika. And my father stood up and started yelling at the foreman that he would, you know, and which is not something that one does if you want to spy. And um, Abraham said, he doesn't know, maybe it was a, a joke to ask someone like my father, <laughs> a, a prisoner, to do that. Or, But in any case, my father refused to do it. Which, uh, but he um, so did survive in the ghetto as a, an artist. Um, his he he made portraits of the uh, heads of the what we call the resorts, the workshops, um, and he would it would be, it would be in exchange for food and other things. So he was able to survive. And Abraham said to me that his parents gave my father three day old vegetables for helping him learn how to draw letters. It was very interesting. And three-day-old, if you have three-day-old vegetables in the ghetto, you are like a millionaire. 
So this was a huge, because food, the food in the ghetto, the survival, the hunger, was, it, the, was the most important thing to have food, because without it, you, you would perish. And my father made many scenes of that. He kept the diary in the ghetto. He illustrated it with what, he, what the scenes that he saw. But unfortunately, that diary was destroyed. And only, there were no remnants or no information about any of his works in the Lodge ghetto. And I had searched all over, all over, trying to read everything about artists in the ghetto. My father was never mentioned. Then in 2004, it was actually Abraham Seekert was going to be speaking at this conference at the University of Lodge. And it was, and you know, there would be authors and, um, you know, professors and all those high-end people who are interested in the history of it. It was not the reunion. It was the actual conference about the ghetto. And I was invited, so I, came, I also came. And he, he introduced me to a, a historian from the University of Gießen. His name was Sasha Foyshirt. And I learned that my father was a contributor to the Chronicle of the Lodge Ghetto because he had discovered in an undocumented, it was not part of the, the chronicle that was known at the time because there were different versions of the chronicle, that my father had produced a print of a bridge, of the Lodge Ghetto Bridge, and it was on, as a header on top of each page of the chronicle for about a year and a half, starting in May 1942. And this is very, very exciting to me because I never never um, could find anything. And here was a historian who um, had found a piece and actually then gave credit to my father. And that's the huge difference. Many times his works do not get credit. They go on, they've gone on exhibition and they don't, or publish in a book and they don't write David Friedman. And so there was no way for me to find, find, find this. And then I learned that um, from another, his associate also, Andrea Loesch, who's um, a historian of the Lodge Ghetto as well, that Oscar Rosenfeld wrote about my father in his diary in the context of, of five artists. And again, I had read this, and I only saw four, four artists. My father was cut off from wherever I was reading <laughs> And I was so happy because now... Um, you know, it's like anything else. Like he had to prove to the Germans that he was an artist. If you don't have something to show, nobody um, can document it. Nobody will write about it. So this was a huge break starting in 2004 of um, finding exciting things about my father not only from the Lodge Ghetto, I also found the piece from Auschwitz Museum had a piece. Um, it, was, it was a very exciting time. The Jewish Museum in Prague has looted artwork. Some of them looted from others. Hard to say because there's no very little um, documentation. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a very interesting journey. And is it in the Auschwitz Museum? Is that what one of the only pieces of your father's work from the time he was a prisoner? 
Yes, that's a that's true. As as in the camp, so my father never mentioned it, um, but and I never learned of it, even though I had written to the Auschwitz Museum and actually had nice correspondence going with them. But I learned one of my lessons was that the art department and the history department don't necessarily talk to each other. In other words. They don't share information. So I'm writing to the art, art department, and the history department is publishing books about the large ghetto, and they don't include my father because I don't know about him, you see? So when I went to the Auschwitz Museum, it was just to introduce myself, and um, I wanted to meet the curator that I had been talking with, you know, via letter. And when I came into the room, you know, I saw she had prepared all the materials that I had sent to the Auschwitz Museum. In those days, slides, photocopies, you know, of documents is not like today, you know. Everything was sent them like a box of information about my father, so he should be remembered by the museum, who had no record of him. Um, So... um, of course, we don't need a record. He has the tattooed number in his arm. But, you know, it's, it, but the um, Nazis destroyed records as they, as they fled, as the, you know, fled. So not all the, you know, records survive, obviously. So going back to this trip to the Auschwitz Museum, I noticed there was, she had a postcard, like the site of a very large postcard, and on it, was a small photograph um, of a of a survivor. What it looked like a prisoner, actually. Excuse me, it was a prisoner. I I couldn't figure out what it was because I was in such shock to find something there that I hadn't given them. <laughs> and I had a translator with me. I was assigned a translator, and um, she was explaining to me that the that the museum received a portrait of this. It was a Polish prisoner, um, and that he had donated the piece to the museum in about 1980. This was just about the time this, my father had actually passed away. And so I asked to have the letter, whatever evidence, I wanted it in writing that they had it. I was very grateful that I could snap out of it and think of it, because had I asked later for that letter... From from the from that prisoner, I would not have gotten it, and I had to stamp it <laughs> that it was true that it was true because they couldn't show me the portrait because it was too late in the day wherever they had stashed it. You see, so it has a very interesting story. So this Polish prisoner was in my father's uh, barracks, and I learned from his letter that my father. Well, it doesn't surprise me that he portrayed. <laughs> fellow prisoners, and that he, um, one of the, he must have been asked by this Polish prisoner to make a portrait of him, or he just did it because he was, he liked, my father liked to do portraits, and he took the portrait at, because he was a Pole and not a Jew, he was able, he was working in the, by the, in the railroads and some accounting office, he was a prisoner still. And he had the drawing smuggled out to his mother that she, that he could show him that he was alive. So it was folded. You could see that it was folded and hidden. And it has two crease marks. 
So this is a fascinating story. And what was very interesting in the letter is that he, he wrote, I met Dr. Friedman in the camps, an older prisoner who said he was writing that he was a press artist, and he mentioned a bunch of different newspapers that he told him about. So it was a huge excitement, and I tried to find find him, but he had he had died already, so there was no it would have been a, a real life witness. But I'm so grateful to to him for donating the piece to to the Auschwitz Museum. Because then I fell off a few years later, it actually was around two, in the 2004 or something, I learned that the Centrum Judaicum um, Synagogue in, in Berlin was having an exhibition of Auschwitz, um, uh, Auschwitz survivor artwork. That's not correct. Artwork that was done at Auschwitz. So I... Um, I was in contact with her to let her know about this piece, and she was very excited about it because she says she wasn't told there were any Jewish artists in that collection because actually the exhibition was about the Polish artist, but she she called for that portrait, and so now it was in in Berlin on exhibition. And that was perhaps the next most, uh, I would say, extraordinary experience. They sat me in the front row next to the chancellor and they, he made a speech and it was really, I said, my father would never have believed it. And it was, it was enormous recognition because uh, that up until I discovered it in the Auschwitz Museum, although I had heard that it had been exhibited once before, it wasn't, it didn't have any connection to my father. So that's my role in this life is I try to connect all these little pieces so that the, so that the um, Jewish institutes, German institutes, in, in know about his work that he did in, che- in the Czech Republic and in Poland and in Israel and even in the United States. And every time I find something astonishing, I have to write to all these institutes because these are unbelievable stories because... Um, and. What is also wonderful is that I've befriended many um, of the um, curators from, from the different institutions, and it's very important to have that open because you never know what they're going to come across. And one of my most exciting discoveries was um, by this uh, was a manager. His name was Isnees Goldberg. He's no longer with Yad Vashem. But he was going through these um, contact sheets that he had received from the from the large city archive, and in going through those, I guess, quite a, hundreds of contact sheets, he found drawings by my father from 1943 of a hat hat factory, a workshop, you know, another resort, and um, they were, you know, <laughs> so exciting. That was in 2006. And from that date on, I'm searching for this album, which absolutely had no trace. Um, and so about two years ago, one another researcher that I had been in contact with, um, Eva Weiter, she's a historian from, from Ludge, um, she um, told me she had found color photos of this on an Israeli website. So now I knew the album existed because 
there's no, and the pictures are not professional. And I saw they had been shot from 19, in 1999. The Institute would not help me, didn't answer my letters as to, you know, could you just tell me the source? I'll order new pictures, whatever, uh, nothing. And, and also the Yad Vashem, um, People try to help. Even the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum people try to help. But there was no way to find out who had the album. And unfortunately, many people um, after the war took took pieces and they took them home. And some of them are sell them back. You know, di- you hear about it, the diaries, paintings, whatever they could find. Um, so I, we just felt that this was probably in private hands. So this Ela Leiter, which I suppose named W-I-A-T-R, I have to give her credit for this, because she went to a conference at the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, and she talked about my father's artwork and how I was searching for this album, and the curator says, oh, we have that album. So, oh, my God, right from, right from, um, from this building which she was in, the account in Warsaw, she started to post on my Facebook timeline all these pictures that she was so excited to find. And last year, um, they put the whole album of, of drawings, about 33 drawings, online. Now, what was so spectacular about these drawings was many of them were colorized. So this is something you could never get uh, even understand from these damaged contact sheets, how special this was. So now I feel I have to tell everyone in the world about this discovery because, I, you know, they don't, you know, know about this. And it's very interesting. So they got had the album since 1948, I believe, but it was never entered into. And I was visited the, the um, Institute in 2004. And I wrote a letter as well in, in the 90s. It was not entered in the system. And because it was not entered in the system, and, and despite the fact that I, you know, talked about it and I, I you know, met with, with a curator there, they had no record of it. So that's what happened to that portfolio. <laughs> um, a, a wonderful, you know, paint pictures and now you see them in the original state, and it just tears at your heart. You just, it, it's just extraordinary. And I have to say that none of my discoveries have ever had an easy twist. There was always something um, challenging about it. It's like you're trying to find something that doesn't exist. It, it, it's worse than a needle in a haystack. Um, because I don't know what, where or what, what my father produced until I find it. I have some idea of, from the few pieces that survived, but I've become an expert of recognizing my father's work. I learned so many interesting things, how often he changes his signature. I saw him as a young man in 1915. You know, where <laughs> a piece turns up, you know, it's like, he was young. He was 20 years old. I mean, it's hard to even wrap your head around it. It's like a whole other life that I missed out on. And I, I felt very, um, 
um, grateful actually that I was able to 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 re to go back in time and follow my father's footsteps all over the place and learn that everywhere he went, he left a legacy behind. And you know, when I started this journey, I never thought. That oh, I have to. I should go with a with a filmmaker, or I should go with a you know somebody to help me with that because it just seemed so out of this world that anything would survive. So I didn't have that, and it's really a pity because it's such an extraordinary story. Um, not of of you know justice. It's justice for my father if I can find something. And they put it online for the world to see because, you know, and it's also justice for my father when other people now today include my father's works in their presentations or they want to publish a piece in their book. Um, it's very meaningful to me because it, it, it continues my father's life. Um, and the media, you know, doesn't have much interest um, in my in Nazi looted art that's not old masters and you know involved million dollar lawsuits and people uh, forget that you know art patrons are priced out of this top market will buy artwork from a, a Jewish artist who, who achieved the measure of fame and my father was very successful. But his career was cut short, and his life changed forever because of the German Reich. And I learned that the Nazis did not necessarily destroy their art unless they were deemed degenerate. And therefore, um, his works um, could be sold or auctioned until at least 1942. But art dealers were prohibited from advertising these sales. So I just want to make the point that this is an example of the immense undocumented theft from the artists of the lost generation. After all, there exists only the barest of details, no titles of artwork, nor records of confiscation. So surviving art of my father's is more likely to hang on the walls of a private home than in a museum. Um, some of the estates... As they die out and family die out, the artwork turns up in the state sales, flea markets, um, and in, in auction houses. And um, the trick is to to get wind of this before it gets dispersed <laughs> all over the place. Um, and it's a great challenge, and there's no support from the German government to help individuals um, to track even this work, I mean, everything I've had to do alone. It, I, I've had to come up with the idea. I had to pursue it. And I had, I did have some great success, but I also had some failures. But my, I was impressed with my father's pursuit for, just, for, for justice, for the, his lost work, and which inspired my own quest for his um, rescue from oblivion, because I feel that with each artwork that is discovered, his his reputation is restored. His name is is known again, and it was very sad that my father had to write to me that um, in the 1970s that 
no auction dealer would know who he was. And so basically it was less like what the Germans did. They, they deemed this work as, you know, not very valuable. And, you know, the thing is, too, with your father's dealings with the German government after the war, yes. the, the restitution efforts that he made, it took years for them to give him anything, and it was fighting over the fact that he could not document well enough exactly. what they wanted to see, which is really stunning and yet we've we hear that a lot that that the onus has been put on the person who had been displaced exactly yes so you can imagine um so after my father after actually was my mother after she passed away um she had discarded my father's whole restitution files because it was legalese german and why would i want to read that and i <laughs> of course at that time I didn't know that I wanted to read it either because I couldn't read it. It's uh, quite uh, difficult to get through. But um, you know what? When you're determined, you get through. And so on my one of my trips to Berlin, I headed over to what was then the Wiedergutmachungsamt, the reparation office, and made copies, um, started to make copies from the files, but... I didn't, they didn't have enough, I, they, they were closing and I had to return. There was so much to copy. So I ordered, I paid for it. I ordered um, my uh, the most important parts of my father's side. They were really ki- kind of me because she pulled out what she thought the uh, archivist there, what I would be most interested in. Because quite frankly, a lot of it seemed to be repetitive. And the same document and my father saying, you know, um, and they was getting back the same answers. So it was very interesting for me because now this painful history was unfolding. And I understood because I was only a child um, when all this was happening. And I had no way of knowing that my father um, was anything but my father and an artist. I knew that. <laughs> but, you know, when you're a child, that's really all that you get. And then um, I had some bizarre things that happened to me. Um, I went on a trip to uh, Berlin as still as a college student and went to visit my Aunt Kate, which is my the sister-in-law of my brother. And when I, as I entered the apartment, I saw my father's artwork hanging on the walls. And I was just so stunned, and I really didn't make any fuss, but I was thunderstruck that there was a portrait of his first wife, Matilda. And I didn't know if my father meant to surprise me or that I was going to surprise him. So I didn't make any fuss about it. I took photographs, and I gave them to my father, when I returned to the U.S. And my father's face again had turned red as he recognized the paintings that had once hung in his own apartment and that his sister-in-law never told him. Uh, His brother Adolf had unwittingly saved paintings from the Nazi looting at the time in uh, spring 1940 when my father tasked him to... to, um, 
to close down his apartment, which he had been paying rent for because he thought he would be, he was an optimist who was going to return to Berlin and that the madman, the political situation was going to change. So in the spring of 1940, he tasked his brother to, to um, pack up everything to this um, Zilberstein and Company. It was a, um, a forwarding, it was a um, shipper business. And then when he realized my father couldn't um, get out to Palestine, because this is what, once, once he had fled to Prague with his family, the Nazi hordes were on their tail. Three months later, they occupied Czechoslovakia. So my father had, the, had, had his storage container put in the warehouse since he was not going, getting out to go to Palestine. When my father was in the Lodge ghetto, he received a postcard from his sister-in-law, Kate, that the Jewish lists had been um, confiscated by the Gestapo, that um, the Silverstein um, was also had been Aryanized, and all the and the Jewish property anyway was worthless. It had no you could not own property. So it was no longer my father's property. It was, it was a Nazi property. And I believe that they, would have had, they had auctions for this to make money for the German Reich. And that's why I think my father's works were sold as part of a lot, as part of, you know, what the Nazis were selling. Not specifically that it was David Friedman art, because my father would not have had such a name that the Nazis were, were looking to just hunt down his artwork. But nevertheless, they could sell his artwork and make money for the regime, which is what I believe happened. Or the other thought is that at the end of the war, there was so much bombing that if it had been somewhere in a safe place, it was destroyed. So we don't know anything he was not able to find out anything nor nor was i but i kept my eye on the internet which was some which was a phenomenal um connection to the world not available to my father and one day i came across a site and it was in french and someone was selling um a painting of two nude women and it was Painted in 1918, which meant it, uh, uh, that it was paint, painted right. Actually, I think it was numbered number 18, not painted in 1918. And I came to, to my knowledge that several years later, more paintings turned up um, in France with this number in red, 6198. Um, suggesting an auction, perhaps just a reference number, but the paintings that turned up are not related in subject matter or style and were sold by different vendors. Um, and of course, I'm at a loss to what specific auction sale this marking refers to or what other significance it may have. Um, these numbers do not confirm the looting from my father's storage container in Berlin, but the hypothesis has merit because 
The paintings are sold in one lot and arrive in France as a collection. And they were dispersed over time. So where did my father's paintings end up? In the flea market, in these small auction houses, um, and usually by chance um, that you, know, you come across it. Um, but only if an auction house will advertise it can I find out about it. And that was also very tricky. And sometimes, most of the time, I should say, I found I found out after the auction was already held and the paintings may have already been dispersed. But now with the Internet, you have those things online, this information online, and it's really astounding that how his work turns up all over the place. His work has even turned up in the United States. Uh, in Minnesota, in Iowa, in um, also in the, in New York, up in near Buffalo, it's it's quite astonishing and exciting because you just never know what's going to come up. The story in um, in, in from Buffalo, what is an interesting one. There's an art gallery. It's about an hour outside of um, Buffalo, and the owner's grandfather was a collector of German prints, the Meinborn Gallery. And so they were, she had decided to sell off this collection of her grandfather's. And one of her staff members, as he's searching on the internet, who is this artist, David Friedman, finds me and that I'm looking for my father's lost art. So I get his email. Um, from from this gentleman, and they want to gift the the, the uh, etching to me, and I was like astounded. What? How is this etching up and up there? I mean, what? How? You just know know where something is going to turn up, and this was the first colorized etching I had ever seen, and I didn't know the date. Maybe it was I by the signature. I figured about two thousand. 18, 2000, I'm sorry, 1918, 1920, that kind of date. So a few years later, I happened again on the Internet this, uh, with this title, an, an etching, but this one was not colorized. It was the same scene, but from a different angle, and it was dated 1920. My father had added a tree he had no people in it like in the first, but it was the same exact village. And this was collected by, it was part of a portfolio from a collection by this gentleman. I don't know if he died out or he just gave it to the auction house to sell the portfolio. Um, so my father has been not only in this port portfolio, his, his etchings have come up in other private collection portfolios. Maybe they only have one piece. And then it takes maybe a few generations for it to, to surface when maybe the, the descendants want to sell it or they don't have an interest in this. It's hard to speculate, but it's like so exciting. Now I have a side-by-side -side of a colorized and a, an etching and a um, dry point etching of the same scene, different views. Then a few years later, a package arrived, <laughs> and it was from the same gallery, I guess I had gotten down to a few more drawers, and they found two more etchings, and they gifted them to me as well. So this is really kindness from strangers, because 
the grand the granddaughter of this German printmaker could have very well have sold sold those pieces, but she preferred to give them to me. And this is really a, an outstanding story um, of the generosity of people. And I have to say, overall, I have been um, lucky. I many people have been generous to me, um, and even find art on their own, and then they contact me, and. It's even been from strangers. I get emails. Do you know this piece is on auction? I mean, I don't know who these people are, and they're writing to me. It's really exciting because um, it means that they care, that my message has been um, understood, and they understand that it's important to save a piece of my father's works, and that is most meaningful to me. How many are still missing? So my father only claimed, I forgot how many, maybe 800 piece, pieces in um, on his restitution claim. But he wrote in testimony and other um, documents that there were 2,000 pieces that he lost. So I don't know if he's now including the prolific work that he had uh, achieved in uh, Prague from 1939 to 1941, or if he you know, what exactly he was thinking of, but I know that my father's album is a record of his, is a a record of the consequences of war. And I learned many things from his album. He showed me, and this is very important because this shows his compassion for humankind, even in 1919, when he read about the, um, the pogroms that were happening in uh, white Russia or Eastern Europe. And he was so outraged, he produced 12 etchings to show, to show the world what was happening to the Jews, the despair, the persecution. And in 1954, when we came to the United States, my father met up with, um, his name is Ludwig Vranko. He, was a, he, had come, he had escaped Nazis with the journals that he had also participated in. Many of his works were also published. He was quite renowned. And um, he tore out two pages from this journal that, that was published in 1919 and gave it to my father. So it's very meaningful to understand that, unlike many artists who are now painting the Holocaust for commercial reasons, uh, my father, already in 1919, was expressing his outrage at what was happening to the Jews and wanted to show this to the world. And he could never have imagined in 1919 that he would also be a victim of, a, of what, and could never have predicted such that mass annihilation. What what was that? I mean, no one could understand such you know, inhumanity and such a uh, business for the Nazis of how they how they did everything meticulously to make sure they not only murdered you but robbed you of everything so that when you came out of the camp, you had nothing. And now you had to prove to the courts, in my father's case, you had to get a copy of his birth certificate. But the registers were often, um, and documentation was also burned by the Nazis. So it was really a long haul to to find 
you know, to get his documentation of who he even was. And then he had to prove to the jury and the German court that his work was more, worth more than the canvas it was painted on. And they, um, they were quite treacherous, the um, German courts. They got a, a, um, a very famous um, art critic who, um, on, who would claim that he did not believe that my father uh, exhibited at the Berliner Succession because it was a huge honor to exhibit, to be invited to exhibit. And David Friedman, who was he? Well, he wasn't, he was, he was only a survivor in their eyes trying to get back compensation for the, his property. His artwork was not important. But he also had, um, in, on his behalf, he had uh, Dr. Carl Schwartz, who had been the director of the Jewish Museum, and he testified on behalf of my father. And my father found more witnesses. Um, but unfortunately, he, um, you know, he would never get what one of those paintings from the old masters <laughs> for his entire property. But still, this is how I discovered my father was um, not typical like all my friends' fathers because he had a full-page article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that told his story, and I was drawn into this and learned at the age of, t of 9 and 10, 9 or 10, how, how important my father really was, and he was no ordinary artist. So even then, I had those little seeds planted that um, I wanted my father to have justice, that um, he, he should be renowned today. Um, but at that time, of course, it, it was not a possibility. And he came to the United States. He rebuilt his life working in um, painting gigantic billboards like Budweiser, uh, Clydesdales, um, Hunt's tomato sauce, but he received great rec recognition in this career. And but as soon as he retired in 1962, and this was after he won his um, after he won his case, we went back to what was most important to him was the Holocaust artwork. He really needed not only to relieve his own pain. He wanted to, he was upset by the anti-Semitism that he thought was on the rise. Now, this is in the 1960s, because in America, to be a Nazi or communist is not forbidden. And he could see on the television, the Ku Klux Klan was marching around. And this was like really very, 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 very upset. And um, so his artwork in 1962, 63, in 64, were on display, I think probably could have been among the first, if not the first, exhibition of its kind in the United States. Just like in January 46, he had an exhibition in, in a little town called Chesky Duk, not far from um, Prague, maybe about an hour, and that's where he met my mother, Hildegard Tausik who was also a survivor of Auschwitz, of Treisenstadt Auschwitz and um, 
Christianstadt, and she has her own story. She escaped from the death march, and she went um, and pretended to be a German girl, which she could do because her hair was not cut in the Auschwitz camp because she was part of the Theresian family camp, and also because she could speak Hochdeutsch. She, she spoke German like the like like a native because she was born in Berlin and her parents were German speaking even though they were living in the in Czechia. So she so she was completely devastated after the war. She lost her mother and her twin sister. And so now she meets my father saw her in the room in the in a health spa where the Czechoslovakian government or maybe the Jewish committee was sending the survivors for healing. And he noticed my mother across the room, sitting by herself, all dressed in black. And he said to his neighbor, who is this? <laughs> he, she said, oh, that's Miss Hilda Taus. If she doesn't mingle with anyone, invite her to the table. Our soup has just been served. And this is how he met my mother. And so from the very beginning, my father did his first portrait of her, his first sketch, so he could learn more about her because she was so um, to, to herself. She, he recognized that underneath all of that, there was a magnificent, magnificent person to bring out. And so this is how um, they met. And my father had his first exhibition in the town hall. My father never sat still. He would never, even as a child, on vacations, he would he would go with his um, paints and brushes, and he would paint the forest. He would paint the swimming pool. He wouldn't get in the swimming pool, but he painted the swimming pool. <laughs> he and this is how the father that I knew, who accompanied me to um, the ice skating rink, to and and would always have a sketchbook at hand in the park, wherever he went, he always had a sketchbook in hand. So what's interesting is, like you said, that that exhibit is in January 46, and he was liberated in January 45, right? So within a year, he's created an entire body of work about the Holocaust. Is that right? Exactly. And some of those early works that he produced in 1945 made their way uh, via the, uh, his name is Ziv Shek. He was a... um, he was head of the what they call the Palestine office, which was actually helping people um, move there. And, and um, he he was collecting artwork from from the Theresienstadt artists. Um, and my father's work was all, was the only one from the Lodge ghetto, and they. Um, the money that he that he actually they paid him for eight works, and the money helped him buy more art supplies, which was at a premium after the war, since that was not of interest, you know, artwork. But Zivshek sent this artwork to yeah to Israel to Palestine at that time, and it was toured already in 1947. And I only learned about this in 1983 at the Jewish Holocaust Survivors Conference and in Washington, D.C., when an, a gentleman from the uh, Auschwitz Museum came over and looked at my father's works and said, this looks so familiar. 
So that's how I found out that Yad Vashem now had seven of those pieces. One piece was donated by the um, Zizchek's wife to Yad Vashem in that, around 1980. And um, one piece from that eight that she intended for Yad Vashem is missing. Three of those works, I'm proud to say, are hanging in the permanent exhibition of the Holocaust History Museum. So I feel very proud that my father's work is represented in, in, in the most important uh, institutes in the world. Yes. So going back to this drawing in my father, etching in my father's album, I also found the original. <laughs> It was at the University of Gießen, and it had been bought as part of a collection that was, um, which was given to the um, library as a gift of, of the gentleman who collected all the artwork, and it was named after him, the, the, the collection. But here's how I found that. So I, I was Googling Friedman and putting different dates. I put in uh, 1919. I don't know exactly how I got it. I, I try to Google in foreign languages. <laughs> and I come across this little pissy statement about an etching of an old man that possibly by Friedman dedicated to his violin teacher. And I like, what? So I immediately wrote, this is the difference between writing in the 80s and writing um you know, in, the, in, in 2016, let's just say. Um, and also, it's because now institutions have opened up. Where everything in, they've opened up their catalogs. They've opened up access to staff members, which you could never do. You would just have to write Dear Director in the past. Now you could actually have um, uh, inter interchange with somebody in command of the museum, for example, who would be who would be willing to exchange a few emails with you, which is always very wonderful for me because I always strive to have that communication open because you just never know. So I wrote to the, to the director of this library, and the next morning he was already emailing me in return, and um, I told him about about that I think that this was a work of my father, but could he send me the image, which he did. And it was the exact, it was the exact etching that was in my father's album. And the dedication, I, I believe, was to Richard Hartzer, who was a violin, who was a teacher under, um, under Carl Flesch in Berlin. And this is, again, a new... You know, access. So this piece, in my mind, is when Richard Hartzer fled um, Germany. You know, he left all this stuff behind. And this is what we don't know, where these things turn up. And probably this Professor Schmuling who bought, who bought this um, piece, they have just as well found it on the, in a, in a um, uh, flea market or a private sale. We just don't know. But it's so exciting to, um, it kind of gives it a whole historical context to see some piece that actually my father did when he was such a young man. He was recognized at the age of 20 as an artist. And now after the war, he was nobody because he had nothing to show of his past existence as an artist. And I learned another inspiring story was that I didn't understand 
even as a, a young adult, the huge gaps in my father's life because of the absence of the artwork, because the artwork fills in his life, what he was doing, uh, what was he seeing, what was he thinking. So it came, it came to a great understanding one day when a package arrived at our house, and my father rushed to show me the photograph of a portfolio that was found at the Estrava Museum, which is in Czechia. At that time, it was communist country, and uh, it was amazing that he that he was he received this gift, you know, from a friend who had traveled up there to see if he could find anything. And he turned to me and he said, "You see, Mary, I was once a famous um, artist. These are my chess master portraits of all famous." Um, chess personalities, right? And so this also meant a lot to me that my father could see some of his work, but never did I believe that I would find four four or five more original portfolios, including one in The Hague. So this was really quite stunning because everything he said, said to me was true because even though I was looking at photographs, when you see the real portfolio, you realize what a huge um, bit of discovery it, this was. And his portfolio is, is still being collected, meaning that, that some collectors are, like, keeping it to themselves. They don't want anyone to know that they have it. Um, and then when they do sell it, they get quite a bit of money for it. And it's really very interesting part of of the of the uh, finding justice for my father is that he's getting credit for his work, so that his chess master portraits are like so, uh, become an iconic um, piece of my father's history, and also was the reason that launched his press artist career. Because when he came back to Berlin to publish this portfolio which he claims he made up to 50, but I found the last number I found was number 28. So I don't think um, the others either survived or were made. I don't know. But this was very um, unusual because the portfolio, I'm looking at it, and I realized that there are two titles. So my father originally had the chest in German, the chess master attorney in, in Ostrava, but the portfolio that he was printing in Berlin was Kupferberlinter Schachmeister, the heads of famous chess masters. So this came to the attention of the, of the, um, I guess of the newspapers, editors, I'm not sure, but that pulled him into the press. They were very excited about his portraits. Those portraits were published in the newspaper. And I had reconciled, I remember when I went to Ostrava in 1994, nobody knew anything of what happened to this portfolio. It was missing. And, um, which was very sad for me because I wanted to see it. And we thought, well, maybe when the communism left, left and the new, it became a democracy, people felt that they could maybe, who knows, take it? I don't know. We don't know anything. So in the meantime, I um, 
wrote a I wrote an article for a test magazine about my although that I couldn't find the portfolio, I had found um, numerous um, chess players in the newspaper. And so all kinds of chess and with the chessboard, all wonderful, wonderful um, portraits. Maybe I have about 70 portraits just of chess masters that were playing in Berlin um, or wherever my father would go. <laughs> so I wrote this article, and then I get a postcard in the mail from a man who says, why did I write there were only three portfolios <laughs> at that time? And he says he had, I forgot what number he had. I think it was 23. And he had the portfolio of Emmanuel Lasker, the three times world champion um, who was thrown out of this country, came to the United States um, with nothing. And in his old age, he had to um, start playing tournaments again because he had no other source of income. So Manuel Lasser saved my father's portfolio, and on the inside page, I went to go. I went to see it. The portfolio was in Pennsylvania. I went to see it, and it was such an exciting thing because when you actually see something that is original, which up until that time was really very rare, it it probably gives you a whole new insight. So that's how I discovered my father. That again. I assumed it was one portfolio. It was essentially the same portfolio with two different titles. The one from Ostrava were all those that were on the tournament, but those he did in Berlin, portfolios that he uh, produced in Berlin, left out two lesser players that were not world-renowned, and he put in two famous ones. <laughs> so, And that portfolio was collected um and like I, I believe I said that one turned up in The Hague. It turned up in private collections in the United States. And one turned up in a collection of a, of a chess player in Long Island. And the heirs contacted me about the value of it. And I said, truth be told, if you could just donate it to the Cleveland Public Library, because they have a world-renowned chess, um, you know, they have all the books and the, they have all the, the, the largest chess library besides the one in The Hague, I believe. Um, in any case, they did. They donated it to the um, Cleveland Public Library Special Collection. And I was thrilled because now, this is, now it's open to the public and they put it online. So this is, to me, more important than selling a piece is to have something in an institution because then there's a chance, you know, of finding more things about my father. And this is a whole network um, because every time I, I make this kind of a connection, I make new friends who are now more aware of what to look for, <laughs> which is really a phenomenal, you know, story. But my father you know, never knew about any of this recognition that he would receive. He could never have imagined it. And that I would also have the opportunity in 2009 to be um, on the looted art panel for a conference in Prague. 
was called the Holocaust Era Assets Conference. And I was able to talk about the success and setbacks of my decades-long journey, which is now 40 years plus. Because my father, like you said, is a separate story altogether from any of the other artists. Because he survived and he had a family that wanted his works to, um, to be known among the, the public. So his work in, um, illustrates the inherent value and promise of an artist who produced before, during, and after events leading up to and including the Holocaust. But my father would never have thought that his works would have survived to be shared with, with a national audience, international audience. And I felt very excited thinking that now that I'm in a public place like an international conference, that there would be some interest from the media, but there wasn't. <laughs> they were only interested in all the lawyers that were there with their million-dollar cases um, and to discuss, you know, the looted art from their perspective, which was not of interest, was a Jewish artist who only achieved the measure of fame. Well, and because his career was cut short. Right. And the fact that he also lived through the trauma of losing his first wife and child. Yes. And I, I, I had touched the people with my father's story and the audience was very enthusiastic and congratulated me. And even Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt, who led the U.S. government um, delegation, which I was a part of, commented that I was the face of the conference. But nevertheless, I stood alone on this journey, and it continues. My search is an impassioned and justice-seeking journey. Um, even my photos of my father's artwork is meaningful, because with each find, I learn new themes, artistic styles, and I gain historical knowledge. Hundreds of pieces of my father's works are missing, and certainly... More than fragments survived, but where are they? And the story is very simple. De decades have passed, and art has long been assimilated in private collections. Pieces are hanging on the walls of families' homes for generations, art they've enjoyed all these years. And it just takes someone's interest to search that artist's name, like the woman from Germany. <laughs> who had that wonderful painting of the Havel River and contacted me and therefore learning a huge piece of my father's mosaic, the puzzle of what happened to his artwork. And my father's paintings could be hiding in plain sight. You know, they blend in with other artworks on, on people's pictures. It could be stashed away in an attic until, you know, somebody finds it and, you know, puts it up for sale or somebody contacts me. This is how I find pieces. And I'm very grateful um, to, the, to the public that has joined my search and to help preserve my father's legacy. The legacy that your father most adamantly expressed an intention to uh, 
to have the world see his Holocaust paintings. He did two sets of, or, or two series, two different series of Holocaust paintings. Yes, there were two cycles of Holocaust art. The first one was after his liberation in um, January 25, 1945. And he wrote in his post-war diary, this is very... Um, emotional. Apart from the consequences for the Jews, for my poor family, the evacuation to the ghetto lodge gave my eyes, my inner being, a new dimension. I saw something new, something that never happened before in this century. I experienced this tragedy not only with my eyes, but buried it into my inner being, into my memory, to tear out at a more peaceful time. These are powerful images that I saw, to give form to all that misery, to show it to the world, was always my intent. He was uh, 51 years old, an age older than most survivors, and he believed there was a reason he lived, to bear witness to Nazi Germany's killing of innocents. Torn from his memory. How was it received? So in, it was very well received in um, Prague. He had exhibitions. And um, it, it just so turned out this is a very special part of this history that nobody really has explored much. But my father wa- met a, um, a town mayor from, a te- from Western Bohemia, a town called Harbutov. It's near the German border, maybe an hour's, very close. And he was not Jewish, but he was married to a, to a, to a Jew, who had been in Theresienstadt, and he got her out. And he himself was anti-fascist, anti-Nazi, and he was himself imprisoned. So he was part of this uh, group in in, um, in Prague of like a like a uh, after the war they had some kind of a group where they met. Um, and this is my father um, met this town mayor who came to see his paintings and says, "We must bring this." to Western Bohemia to show the Germans that still are living there what the Nazi atrocities were against the Jews because they don't believe it. Now, this was a time when um, there were still many German, Sudeten Germans living in that area, and they were eventually um, kicked out, most of them, because they had sided with Hitler. They were, you know, you see the picture of Hitler coming into Heb, which is, a town also near here, and everyone, they're all raising Heil Hitler because they embraced him. They embraced um, Hitler and, and the Nazis. So my father went to Western Bohemia, and he went all through the town, about seven, eight towns, and they plastered these huge uh, announcements out that, that, this, that, they, that the Sudeten Germans were forced to come and see my father's artwork, and they had to pay entry. Otherwise, they would not get their food ration cards. And this is really quite sensational. And the story behind that is that while he's having these exhibitions, he starts a whole new artwork series of the life of the coal mine worker. So he paint, he, the, the industrial landscape intrigued him also in memory of his own hometown, Ostrava, which was also a coal mining region. So he, he did about 50 paintings and drawings from this, from this era. 
And by now, you know, I'm a very curious person. <laughs> My father had a picture of one of the pictures of these coal miners paintings in his album. And also we had quite a number in the, uh, that he had brought into, into, um, with us that were living with us into our house. My house is covered with artwork from floor to ceiling. Even the hallways, even hallways to the bathroom, everything was covered with artwork. So I never knew what was missing because it's just like I had artwork everywhere. <laughs> so, um, I was intrigued about this part of my father's life, which again, he wrote to me in, in the diaries how he went to Western Bohemia. Western Bohemia to show his artwork to the Sudeten Germans who didn't believe what had happened to the Jews. And uh, many, many years later, like say the last 10 years, I was thinking what I was going to do with these paintings, and I ended up donating them to the museum in that region, and they are now hanging in the museum. Probably the museum is closed with the COVID, but at least I was able to get those pictures hanging to mean something because the communists closed the coal mines and also all the history of those people. So I was returning some of this history to that region. And in doing so, also the interest of the museum director, he searched the archives and found many um, documents talking about, you know, similar to the, the letters and the uh, posters that I had about how many Germans actually came to see the exhibition and how, um, how important it was for everyone to see this artwork. And this is now in between 1946 and 1948. And then, of course, the communists um, had a bit a problem with my father's artwork. They wanted it for the war museum, his Holocaust artwork, which my father would not agree to. So they put an exhibition prohibition on it, but he didn't survive Auschwitz not to be resourceful. He, um, he needed, he met, so I just tracked back, he met my mother at, um, in Chesky Dup in 19, January 1946, and they married in 1948, and my father started his plans to escape the communists with his own artwork, which had, um, which would be a problem because they would check his luggage and they would check. So he sent all his artwork a month before he left for uh, Israel with my mother's father who was immigrating there with, and when my father made his own escape to leave, they looked up and down in his luggage and asked him where his paintings were. And he said, they're in Prague. And they let him go. So he was able to be reunited with his artwork in, in, um, in Israel. But Israel was in a poor economical situation. And also the people were not so interested to see Holocaust artwork. Everyone that were survivors were trying to rebuild their lives. And so, including my father. And once again, he had to, like in, in Germany under the Nazis, he worked in either in commercial art or renovating buildings or 
like that. My father in Israel contributed to the founding of the industri- into of the commercial art industry. He can, went back to his sign painting, and um, but every free minute he painted the landscape and captured the beginnings of the Jewish state. His color palette had changed to a lighter, um, beautiful, you know, yellows and and gorgeous aqua blues. Um, so he had left behind his old dark, dark world, but he wanted to come to the United States because he didn't feel he uh, could be successful in Israel. Had he stayed in Israel, he would have been successful. But he, it was hard to know that at that time because we were living in a one-room you know, apartment, and um, he wanted a better life for his young family. So off we went, off we went to New York. <laughs> I was wondering if the reaction of Israelis to his Holocaust paintings, if it didn't tie in also to this silent generation who did not want to talk about what they'd seen. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That's a re- it's really to me that is like such a stark contrast with your father because you know he it was expressing he he had an intention to express what he saw so that it would never happen again and was going out of his way to express it in the way that he had such skill to do right and you know he wrote he had a you know put the uh, pictures of the concentration camp he had to lock it away so that he could you know have a so it still it still stayed with him, stayed with him all his life. He just could not do enough, and um, but he had to had to make an existence. He came came to the United States. He was sixty one years old. I was four. Just to give you an idea, what a huge um, gap there is. And um, he was taken off the boat and right to the general outdoor advertising studios. And he again was painting for his life, not like he was painting in the Glywitz subcamp of Auschwitz where he would be murdered, but in the sense that he had to show that he had the skills for the job so that he could, you know, pay for rent and all, everything else to earn a living. And it was really quite a sensational story. What happened was he was given... Um, a magazine he should choose something to 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 um, portray on this big um, 22 foot billboard that he had never painted anything this large before and he picked a um, a photograph of a, a girl at, uh, you know and he writes that they were kind of snickering because they didn't understand why he would choose something so difficult where, where a landscape, you know, you can kind of fudge the details a little bit. You don't have to be so perfect. My father picked the uh, portrait, and he got in front of the billboard, and he started to draw with the charcoal to start to put everything in. And soon a crowd was gathering behind him, just like in the camp, started to, uh, to watch him. And by the third day, he had his girl portrait done, and the director from the Chicago office, art director, was in the studio and hired him on the spot. They said they never had an artist like him. 
then he didn't even speak English. They didn't care about his age. <laughs> but my father made his, they gave him $100, which was more than he would have gotten for a whole month in Israel. And so this was the beginning of a huge career for him, new career. We were sent to Chicago. And within 15 months of him arriving in America, he was the top man at the St. Louis branch and at the general outdoor advertising. And um, it brought new recognition uh, to, to my father. But, of course, he was not doing, you know, what he had hoped to, to do, you know, become, you know, a painter, wants to paint what they want to paint. <laughs> so it wasn't until 1962 when he retired that he could return to this art that was still sitting heavily in him. And he was also afraid to start because of my mother, because it, it brings her back to something you want to forget. And she ends up being the model. <laughs> so these models in, in many of the, yes, because my father drew from life. He didn't copy. He drew from life. And my mother was his most ardent fan, but she was also his model. And, you know, that brought everything back to her. So it's not an easy existence for her. But she supported my father every which way she could. And then the exhibitions were, I believe it was in 1964, it may have been the first of its kind in the United States because no one was talking about the Holocaust in the 1960s. And so it wasn't a very, you know, great subject. And when I look at the photographs of the exhibition, I see many elderly people there. And also my friends, because they came to the opening of the exhibition. But otherwise, that that middle group, that age, you know, the 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 twenties, thirties, forties group was not visiting this exhibition. So this is um, the way it was, and brings me back to the idea that with my mother, that we would donate. My father, rather than sell it, because we had opportunity to sell, rather donate to have the artwork as much as a whole as a whole as possible to um, for an institute like the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and the Yad Vashem in Israel to um, have my father's works because it would preserve be the best place to preserve it for future generations, rather than selling one or two pieces. Everybody wants the same piece. It's the one with my father in the, uh, in the death march. And you could see he put himself in the scene with his glasses. But that's like a very important uh, scene. It shows that he was also a victim and not just a, vit a witness. So it's a whole story from deportation to liberation, his works. And I felt as much as possible that it, it's important to show that how he intended to show it with his descriptions, which is what I try to do till this day. How would you describe the differences or the similarities between the two Holocaust bodies of work that he created? Uh, there's a stark difference, actually. The first was mostly um, paintings. There were a few um, sketch, few very few sketches, um, and there was actually one lithograph print. And outside of that, they were all paintings. 
um, the second cycle were only black and white. And it was like the pent-up emotion of holding it in for so many years just went right on the paper. You could feel, feel the pain. And at every exhibition that I've had, it's been very interesting. When people come up, they look at things differently. The art students will look at my father's hands. How did he do his hands? How did he do the portrait? Um, others will come, and it's an educational experience for them. But it cannot be denied that his use of light and dark and how he, he put, made, the, made the people um, in his, in his uh, work is, just resonates to the audience who comes to see his work. Because very few artists, were artists when they went into the camp and then survived. Many of the artists' works that one sees today, even famous artists' works, they were like survived at the age of 17, 18, 19, and first went to art school in some cases. And they became famous for their artwork. The Holocaust artwork started becoming more interesting in the 80s, too, um, and the subject also started to be discussed after the that TV show about um, the artists in Theresienstadt and, um, <laughs> and because of Meryl Streep being <laughs> in that TV miniseries, I think that people were now for the first time a little bit more educated than all that time before. It's, it's crazy that a TV show would um, generate so much interest. And then after that, Holocaust museums were being built across the United States, little ones and, and also this huge institution at Washington, D.C. So I, I felt more uh, at peace knowing that my father's works will have a home and that I didn't have to, to disperse them to private clients. And that series is titled Because They Were Jews? That's correct. That's correct. In fact, uh, we were talking about um, my father's album, which survived in a mysterious way. Um, the photographs and, and um, portraits that he sent, there were t- real etching prints. They were sent to his father-in-law, Dr. Maximilian Fat- Max Fuchs. And, um, and he, seemed, I be- he put them in an album and saved my father's works until he himself was deported and his apartment was looted, which had also 16 paintings from my father and personal property like jewelry and um, dishes. All those things were stored with um, Dr. Fuchs's um, apartment. I believe that he gave that album to to possibly my father's sister-in-law because she was non-Jewish, and maybe she saved it. I don't have those details. But she took it to the Jewish community after the war, and my father was reunited with this album. This was a very special album because the portraits he, he made were of the leaders of the Jewish community in Prague. And most of the subjects were sent to Theresienstadt and were murdered in Auschwitz, including um, well-known um, personalities like Jacob Edelstein and Freddie Hirsch, 
But then there were all those unknown portraits in the book, in the album, that it irked me not to know that uh, who they were. Now, my father wrote names down, but sometimes it wasn't enough. Like, how does one know how to find someone named Bergman? One of those really common names. And I was spent years going through um, <laughs> archive uh, records of deportation, trying to connect my father's portrait to a member from the Jewish community. He had worked for the Jewish community or the Palestine office. And quite frankly, I had a lot of luck. I also had help reading some of these very difficult signatures because I'm sure the subjects didn't realize at the time this was going to be a historic record of, you know, before they were deported. And I donated that album to Yad Vashem, and it was on exhibition. Some of the portraits from, from that was on exhibition. But I also found more portraits at the National, Gallery, National Museum in Prague, at, um, in, at, in, by Theresienstadt, which is a small memorial in, um, in Israel dedicated to Theresienstadt, and a few private collections. And even the Jewish Museum Prague had, had some of these portraits. So he was very prolific. And the portraits were meant to be exchanged between friends and colleagues. You know, you write, you, they write on the back in memory of our time together, you know, and it was during these sad times, it was quite special. And I've shared, um, my research with um, the or different institutes and made the portraits available digitally. And they're on two different websites right now, in addition to the website of the Yad Vashem. So I feel my mission in regards to my, the portraits that my father made, many of them who did not survive, I've done justice for those people too, because sometimes my father's portrait was the only trace of those people. And one more exciting part is that I have also been contacted by people who have found the portraits and say, I'm, I'm the grandchild of this person, and I've never had a picture of my grandfather or, or whatever. And this, this really resonates with me to keep, and keeps me going forward to try. So I'm trying to link all these different legacies um, as a record of my father, and to preserve it for the future. One of the uh, exhibitions that you, I believe, organized in the last few years was involving the Berlin Philharmonic. Ah, that was a sensational story. Yes, so um, I may have mentioned Detlef Lorenz, the art historian in uh, Germany, and he went to a Berlin Philharmonic they have a yearly conference, I guess, about what they, you know, they talk about the, 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 their story and whatever, their history. And the director or the speaker or the, at the time was Dr. Helgi Greenewald. And he, they were, he was talking about how the Berlin Philharmonic was trying to give back to, to, to the victims that had to flee from, from their orchestra because they were Jews. 
And he was talking about Simon Goldberg, the very first, um, the youngest concertmaster, and, and, you know, how he was let go in 34, which was actually longer than most professions were there. Like in my father's case, most professions ended by April 1933. The Jews could now no longer work in any profession except maybe a Jewish uh, in, you know, a Jewish uh, store, or, or if they were still allowed, wasn't very long that it was allowed. So he goes up to him after this conference, and he mentions him to my about my father, how he portrayed the musicians, because of course we want to emphasize the musicians because um, that's what they would be interested in, not the sports, not 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 the opera. Uh, or the chess masters. We have to talk about what, how to to get an attention to my father's works. So he went home and he made a CD of all the, the the solo performers, all the musicians that had played in the Berlin Philharmonic, and sent it to him with some um, works, you know, documents, articles. And a month goes by, we don't hear anything. So Detlef Lorenz appealed to me to write to him myself. I said, oh, but he, you know, why would he be interested in, in, in the, in, in this anyway? I didn't really think, because usually when you write to these directors, you usually don't get an answer. <laughs> That's usually the case. And I, but I did. I wrote to him. I told him, I introduced myself, my father, and I explained that, you know, Detlef Lorenz had spoken to him and blah, blah. And the next day when I came home from work, there was a message on my machine. It was Dr. Helge Grunewald, and he was so excited. He was so excited. He said he he um, saw these portraits, and right away he wanted permission for that of the young Simon Goldberg, which he had been searching for, for an exhibition that they were doing about about his life and art right in his work, right in, in the um, Berlin Philharmonic Hall. So, um, of course, I gave permission, and he, I contacted him, and he said, whatever it takes, I'm going to make sure there's going to be an exhibition of your father's work. And it was done in such a grand style. And I picked the date of Kristallnacht um, for the opening, which, which, um, because I felt it had a lot of meaning, because they, were, they wanted to commemorate an artist. Um, who was cha- was banned from his profession and chased from his phone home, and here now my father was also reviving the obscure musicians where they had no um, had no pictures for because Berlin Philharmonic was bombed at the end of the war, so much of his archive was lost. So my father work even that work that was published in the newspaper gave life to a whole new legacy. And that exhibition um, was kindly given to me. Uh, it was shown in uh, New York at the New York NYU Deutsches House. It was shown here where I live at the Holocaust Center, as well as in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Who could have ever believed such success? <laughs> oh, your father would be very pleased to know that his legacy is living on and honoring other artists in the process. Right, right. And, 
you know, he, um, he painted for the, so the world would not forget, you know, and he, his insistence to produce in spite of Nazi persecution diminished the power of evil because he, he, uh, enjoyed the painting. Even the, the act of painting gave him solace and he continued to grow in his art. And I believe this was a credit to his courage and a form of resistance. His exhibitions in the 1960s, unfortunately, um, were not... Today, they might have become, you know, nationally known, but at that time, it was just in St. Louis at the Jewish Community Center. But uh, the Baltimore Jewish Community Center um, was interested in this exhibition, and it traveled there. And so that was kind of exciting for my father that that... Somebody was interested in his artwork, but that was really it. He showed it a few more times in St. Louis, and nothing. We it didn't. It it you know the paintings. Those paintings were not made for me. They were made to show, and I always felt I wanted to find some place where they could hang together. But it's a pipe dream. It's just not not going to happen. Unless there's a museum that's built for my father's work. <laughs> so I have to just be happy that occasionally a piece of his turns up online or is part of an online exhibition from one of the museums. And I just continue to hope that um, people will understand what my father was trying to do with his artwork and what he had hoped um, that people would learn the lessons of the Holocaust. And I think he would be very sad right now with what's going on in the world, with the rising anti-Semitism that has, I believe it's even worse than, <laughs> than he saw in the 1960s. It just has increased. But I think my father is also a, an example of a man who transformed tragedy into a beautiful creative life because he also painted landscapes and he did still life. And he, when he became um, a little older and he could no longer, he didn't run around outside so much to paint the landscape, he started a series of abstract art. It started a piece of, uh, of abstract art my, and um I have hundreds of those pieces. That's what I have as a legacy, is what do I do next? My search for his lost artwork is still an impassioned and justice-seeking journey. And even photos of my father's lost art is meaningful, because with each find, I learn new themes, artistic styles, and I gain historical knowledge. Hundreds of his pieces are missing, certainly more... Then the fragments I found have survived, but where are they now? So I appeal to the public to join my search to find his work and preserve the legacy of a remarkable artist. By following, you know, his footsteps back to another era and piecing together his life through art, it's just been an incredible journey. There will be links in the show notes to learn more and to view David Friedman's work. If you were intrigued by this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, 
This is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.